Welcome to episode 14 of the Refined by Fire podcast. Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle media production and is brought to you by our friends at Elkhart Brass. I'm your host, Stephen Tyler. So real quick, let's talk about Elkhart Brass, our sponsor. Let's talk about Brass Tacks and Hard Facts, season two, which is still going strong. Uh, They've had a lot of interesting stuff coming out lately on automatic nozzles. Now, I know a lot of us, myself included, have used automatic nozzles as a curse word, and there's good reason for that, Uh, but there's a lot of interesting information as well in these new Brass Tacks and Hard Facts videos from Elkhart Brass. Uh, Jerry Herbst and Chief Dave McGrail have been getting deep into some of the advantages and disadvantages the time for application, and the time not to use automatic nozzles. So definitely go to their Facebook page or go to their YouTube and check out Elkhart Brass, Brass Tacks, and Hard Facts Season 2 video series. My guest for Episode 14 is Jim McCormick. Jim is the founder of Fire Department Training Network and a lieutenant from the Indianapolis Fire Department. Jim is one of the most respected individuals in the fire service and what he has created with fire department training network is hard to overstate its impact on some of the most influential figures in the fire service. This is such a good conversation. Jim really breaks down the importance of the basics throughout our career, many decades into our career why there's really no such thing as advanced firefighting, and why we might be spending a little bit too much time uh, on the next shiny thing when really the root of all these new shiny things is just uh, perhaps the old standard way of doing things. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you appreciate Jim's perspective and are able to learn some things from him every time I speak with Jim. He just blows my mind with some nugget, some new perspective, and I really appreciate him taking the time to do this. So I hope you get as much from it as I did. Please consider joining the Fire Department Training Network membership. Go to fdtraining.com and check it out. Uh, You get a monthly newsletter and you get a discount if you're going to go out to their training facility and take any classes, which... It's kind of a cliche at this point. It has been called Disneyland for firefighters. It really is a world-class facility with world-class cadre, and I wouldn't trade that experience for anything else, and I can't wait to get back. So um, no further interruptions from me. Here's my conversation with the great Jim McCormick. Okay, well, Jim McCormick, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. We've tried to connect a few times, and we finally been able to pull it off. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, Jim, you're a lieutenant in Indianapolis and the founder of Fire Department Training Network. So like a quick back of the envelope description, how do you describe Fire Department Training Network for someone who's never heard of it? So uh, I think what it's become known as is uh, realistic fire ground training. But the reality is, 
it was always designed as a membership group uh, and the training was a part of what would be done with that membership group. So I guess the belief years ago was that uh, as people kind of get in the business or are in the business, they're always seeking places to go to find information. So from the membership standpoint, the training network was started as a place to find real information for the working firefighter. And, you know, there was a lot of organizations out there claiming to do a lot for firefighters. But being a firefighter in a small community in Massachusetts, I found that a lot of those organizations really I didn't find an organization out there that was really doing much for me as a working firefighter. So the training network is a place to find real training and real information if you're into the job trying to move forward or stay into it. And and as it's grown, oh, well, let's let's back up. When did you found Fire Department Training Network? So it uh, it was probably internal for a long time. Um, <clears throat> my father was, and I think we we're going to talk about him. But my father uh, ran an organization called ISFSI, which has kind of reincarnated and come back out with the same initials, but I don't necessarily think the same mindset. But um, in his doing that, I worked a lot in the background with him. I, I formatted newsletters. I did a lot of the design um, and just kind of as a kid growing up. And then, a, you know, as I got into my working years, just stayed in the background with that. But when I got on the fire department, you know, we always had these discussions about what this group was supposed to be. And as a firefighter in a community, right next to where the international headquarters was, you know, I would always tell him that really everything that you claim to be doing, it's not really doing anything for me in this fire department going day to day to responses. And so from that kind of upbringing, we just kind of, I finally decided to say, hey, I'm going to make a make an attempt at doing something that I feel uh, these people say they're doing, but we're missing the mark. So in the mid nineties, um, I was starting to, I guess, develop this concept of a newsletter. I think the model existed from these organizations with newsletters and material and some training. Uh, but I started to kind of design a newsletter that I felt was something that would give guys a short read to keep them going in the, I guess in the day-to-day -day fireground stuff. And it just kind of went from there. So I think we published our first newsletter in 1997. Okay. So that's 21 years. I'm not good at math. Yeah. But I think I can yeah. do that. Uh, so in 21 years, how has it grown? And, and then in, in addition to that, is it what you had envisioned at that time? So um, I think over all the years, and it's kind of funny because I remember it every, every two weeks, it seems, uh, for 21 years, but every two weeks, another newsletter has to get put together. So, so it gives me kind of this long-term view of how it's grown and, and what seems to have happened. Um, so I think in the early years, it was more the newsletter, maybe a little bit of handoff training here and there, but it was really about getting that newsletter done. Just a short 
16-page uh, newsletter that was designed to give you something to think about, something worthwhile for your day at the firehouse or sometime in there. So it kind of evolved on that. There was always this desire to do some training. And in the early uh, years of it, uh, I did training with guys. As we were doing it, there was a little bit of fireground stuff. But as most people have found through all the years, it was much more difficult to do that than it was some of the other more easily delivered material. And that happened to be in that mid-90s was really that special rescue concept of, you know, high-angle rescue, uh, confined space, all that. So um, I did a lot of that with some guys. Um, but the training kind of evolved. As this all started, um, there was always this other desire to always replace um, the institution of books that were out there, which was IFSTA, Essentials, and really that type of book um, with something that was much more firefighter friendly or basically written in layman's terms like you and I would have a conversation. So I think in the early years of my publishing goals, it was to create a Cliff Notes version of the IFSTA essentials that was in fireman terms, I guess. Uh, and hence, you know, over the years, what became known as the Fire Notes series, that's where that evolved from. So there was the newsletter and then the publishing and then the training. And um, as all this was going on, I moved from Massachusetts, from the department I was working on out to Indianapolis. And um, the shift that occurred with that move was when we found the land, we were able to really concentrate on the fire ground training that was always intended. So um, I, I kind of sometimes I lose track on the questions, but I think that was the evolution. There was always there was always kind of three legs of the training network. There was the membership um which was the newsletter there was the publications that we always wanted to build up and then there was the training and the whole idea was that um all three would support one another uh either with short monthly material that led to training and or the books and they would all kind of go back and forth so again uh it's been 21 years and we're now like walking into 2019. Uh, where is Fire Department Training Network going in the future? How do you see it continuing to grow? Uh, so I think, you know, in that time, and I probably didn't answer part of that question, but so we found this land and built this training academy. So, so really that allowed us to keep moving in that same direction. So I think the plan for the future is to always try to increase the membership um, because the membership funds the training, really. I mean, that's our foundation of, uh, you know, trying to provide that material, which we hope is good material for people, but it does provide us the ability to keep expanding um, on the training site. So uh, the goal in the future is to continue to expand the, the realistic training that we, we kind of pride ourselves on providing. Um, and at the same time, try to get more books out. Um, we've always had a goal of really putting that uh, basic firefighter book out that would kind of blow away all those other 
uh, standard books that were out there, like the Essentials or the Fire Engineering Program or the Jones and Bartlett, um, which I'm sure we'll get to that. But that it, it just doesn't seem, I think it's kind of funny, it doesn't seem to hit the mark that it once intended to hit because of the way everything evolves. So, uh, you know, we always kind of say, I don't know if we would be as bad off as we tend to seem to think we are with skills if the skills being taught were the ones that you needed the most. Um, we tend to get off on a whole bunch of other things. So hopefully that would come about um, and maybe it kind of shifts the, the fire service back towards the trade that it is. Um, and our, our hope or intent is that through what we do in our ongoing kind of mission of doing the training network material is that that may help to get there. So we kind of think that the writings and the books and the training all keep pushing forward um, to get people back to just doing the basics. That, that really is in line with my experience. So I went out to your training site to, um, to, to your center this year, or I guess last year in 2018 and had a really fantastic experience there. So I guess a couple things on that, um, just the way you ended that talking about the basics, it reminded me of, of what I heard from Bob Pressler out there who, who just said that everything is the basics and we should do the basics until we can't get them wrong and, and then do it once more. And, uh, I think I, I learned so much from you guys out there. Um, in terms of skills, but then so much in terms of mindset and, and things like that. Uh, those little nuggets from, from guys like Bob Pressler. And uh, the other, the other thing I just, I guess I just wanted to implore the listener real quick before we move on. It's like, I've got the fire department training network uh, webpage pulled up here and you know, this individual membership it's, it's $48 and if you're anything like me, you're going to spend $48 on coffee this month, you know, and it's such a minimal investment, uh, to be a part of something like fire department training network. Uh, you know, I, I guess I would just really encourage everyone to do that. I know you're not going to, to, uh, to make a sales pitch. Uh, so I'm, I'm more than happy to do it for you because I do, uh, believe in your mission. No, that's good. You know, I mean, I think if, if I was to say like the grand scheme of that membership, you know, I always kind of look at, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things out there, but the fire service doesn't seem to have a group. There's a whole bunch of groups claiming to do a whole lot. I'm not saying that we're, you know, different than them or, or not. Uh, but one of the visions of the training network was always to be like the National Rifle Association of the Fire Service. And what I mean by that is that if you bought a gun, you're almost certain to join the NRA, you know, for whatever reason. You get a magazine, you do all this kind of you just get things. But it's almost uh, you bought a Harley Davidson, you join the Hog Owners Club. I mean, it's just, you know, one kind of leads to the other. And um I guess in this day and age, there's so much, uh, so many different groups out there that we've kind of lost, uh, I guess, the understanding or, you know, it seems like we have trouble pushing things forward and we often wonder why. And a lot of times it's because there's no main group pushing it. And so that's, you know, kind of in the 
pie in the sky sense. Obviously, you know, we always thought if you join the you join the fire service, boy, you're looking for a place to join. Boy, the training network would be great. It would kind of that's what you need to do your whole career. And going back to, you know, mentioning names like Bob Presso or even Mike Lombardo, what you mentioned, um, it's kind of funny. They've been in this 40 to 50 years and they're still doing those same things that we want the brand new guy to do. And I think that's a testament to um, success, but it's something that guys seem to miss so often. Uh, this is a little off script, but you just kind of brought this to my mind. Are, are we a little too decentralized right now? Uh, what you're talking about sounds like maybe ideally there would be a, a center, a centralized place to to obtain information or training that, that we could really trust. Is that is that more or less what I'm getting? Well, I don't know that. I think it's just we're too... Uh... Not to um, not to speak bad of any uh, labels that are out there, but we're too ADD. You know, we 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 can't seem to focus, and I, I think that's a just a function of society and technology. But you know, it just seems like um, we we're always looking for something better, something more. And I guess you know, going back to what you said about Bob is. You know, really, it's just those basics. I mean, we could really, uh, I've always said for years, we read, need to write two articles. There's 25 engine company skills and 25 truck company skills. And there's really nothing else that gets the job done that we're talking about, whether it's at the line level or the officer level. It's all the same stuff. Um, but that's not sexy and it's not, uh, you know, it's pretty simplistic. And so, uh we tend to think that there's maybe 2,500 of each and there's not. So we just get off course. You know, if we just kept doing those same things and perfecting those same things, we wouldn't nearly be wondering or scratching our heads why it didn't work out so well. So I don't know if it's in terms of one source, um, but it's those uh, basic go-to methods that's continuously and work most of the time, I guess, that we seem to get off track on. I think that may answer my next question. I'll ask it anyway, and if and if your answer is the same, I'll just edit it out yep. and we'll piece it all together. You've been in a unique position to evaluate firefighters from all over the country as they come to your facility there in Indiana. What are some observations you have about today's firefighters and fire service leaders based on that? that one-on-one -on -one sort of observation that you're able to have there? So um, I think it does go a little bit into that last answer. And it is that, um, you know, as, as we see a lot of people come through, <clears throat> we see a lot of the same struggles. And some of it is just um, a lack of true mastery of those basic skills. And, at the same time, I guess to throw out a, a second observation is that um, there's a perception within individuals, and all of us suffer from it, that our abilities are much greater uh, than they actually are. So we perceive to be really good at doing something, um, but with a few trials under difficult conditions, we find that we're really not that good. So 
um, that perception a lot of times uh, causes problems with practice or, you know, relearning or, you know, becoming a master at something because we don't think we need to do that practice. Um, and the other thing is what we see from, and, you know, the nice thing is uh, we have fantastic students because they all choose to come. Um, and we kind of look at them at maybe a little bit higher level than the average guy because they did choose to come. I mean, it takes a little bit of effort to come out and go to classes. Um, but across the spectrum of student, um, the performance, whether we looked at a group that said, boy, these guys should be real experienced. They come from, you know, busy places. Uh, at the end of the day, the struggles during training are the same struggles that, you know, the less experienced people might have. And it, it really comes down to struggles with basic, basic performance. So I don't know if that answered it, but, um, you know, there's no advanced level training. Uh, it's only advanced level performance. And very seldom do we, you know, we don't have classes that come in with, you know, people that just smoke everything so good that we could say, let's go home today. We don't have to do tomorrow. That's pretty good. You said something there. There's no advanced level training. There's only advanced level performance. Man, that's that's so interesting because we continue to try to to create these bigger drills and these newer things. And I've I've definitely fallen fallen victim to that myself as a as a teacher. It reminds me of something you said about kind of about hockey and you broke down skills. You broke down skills for a firefighter to skills as a hockey player. Could you could you give me that analogy a little bit? I'd have to uh, I'd have to try to remember it, and I'm not sure. But usually, I think no matter what you're talking about, whether it's hockey or you know teaching a dog or teaching forcible entry, it comes down to just the basics of that, and then performing it. So. <clears throat> You know, a lot of guys just don't want to step through the step-by-step fundamentals of a skill. Uh, but you have to do that before you can practice it a little bit more in context and then practice it a little bit more in context. But I, I think what you practice, it's truly the same thing. And, I, you know, one of the questions I think in the, uh, the commentary you had online that I kind of e emailed you on. Um, yeah. So, you know, and you just kind of hit it in the kind of recap there is, you know, guys are looking for new ways to do things. And I, I'm not opposed to new ways, but I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a victim of liking the same. You know, I, you know, change is difficult for all of us. And, you know, I, I struggle with change a lot, not because I can't do it, but because a lot of times it's just distracting me uh, because, we're changing just to say we change. So, you know, going back to that analogy, I, I was, I really was kind of thinking about this the other day. So I look at hockey, I played goalie for a long, long time at a pretty high level and I played it in, a, you know, to talk about what you were just asking is uh, I played it in a time where goalies were stand up goalies. Today they play uh, butterfly goalie is what it's called. So there was a pretty drastic change, you know, and I would say today's goalies are, uh, they're much better percentage wise 
at being able to stop a shot than the stand-up goalie was. They just cover more than net, and that came from learning the angles and things. But, you know, the fundamental skills of using your skates and moving back and forth from side to side and, you know, getting up and going down, those things never changed. They just kind of tweaked how they were doing it, and it really was a better way of stopping goals. And, I mean, it, it attests to it because um, – the NHL now tries to make their pads smaller and their gloves smaller because the guys can't score on them. So it really does come down to, no, it's just how good you are versus how good they are. And I, I think, you know, I get off track a lot on things, but, you know, that hockey analogy of just constant practice of the basics, and then when you go to a scrimmage or a game, if you're just performing those basics that you practiced, you're usually doing pretty good. It's when they try to go off track and do something else that they get themselves in trouble. So I don't know if that hit it or not, you know, and apologize if it didn't. <laughs> don't apologize. Um, this is something I didn't know until I had the opportunity to have a conversation with you out there. But your father, uh, Ed McCormick, was a fire service leader in his own right, and you referred to him uh, a couple minutes ago. So can you tell us a little bit about him, uh, what his contributions to the fire service were, kind of how that set you on your path? Yeah, so um, so real early on, uh, you know, he was a volunteer firefighter and then uh, ended up becoming the chief of a small um, area uh, called Cushing Hospital, which was down in Framingham, Mass., um, but he was real big on training. And uh, in the early years, he worked with a bunch of guys, first in Massachusetts and then uh, people from across the country. Uh, in Massachusetts, first he worked with people to uh, enact legislation which created the Mass Fire Academy. So that was something that he worked on. It was kind of his baby. And he became the first director of training of the Mass Fire Academy and the mid 60s and you know that was what he really wanted to do he, he was all about training and trying to standardize training which from his mass fire academy uh roots he started working kind of nationally with a with a bunch of guys to standardize training so he was involved with the first versions of the ifsta essentials manual and he was you know, involved in that partly through his relationships in Massachusetts and the fire academy and then state directors of training. So those state directors that all work together, you know, they kind of wanted to standardize things, which is kind of funny. Um, and we'll maybe get to that as to looking at where we are today. But there was nothing back there in the early to mid 60s that was standardized. So through all this. Um, for about 10 years, he worked at the Mass Fire Academy and then nationally with all these directors of fire training across the country. Um, and they advanced a whole bunch of initiatives. Uh, one of them, again, was that early versions of the uh, IFSTA material with a guy named Harold Mace and uh, from Oklahoma, Harold Thompson from Georgia, uh, Lou Billy from Delaware, a whole bunch of guys. Um, and then... It, in the mid-70s, uh, he left, he kind of left the fire academy at the, in Massachusetts and then took over running 
ISFSI, which is today it's the International Society of Fire Service Instructors, which it was back then. It's kind of an old, um, older organization that was started, you know, prior to him doing it, but he kind of took it over and they ran FDIC. That was the show, an insurance show that they had started to try to build as a fire show. So his involvement there was to kind of continue with ISFSI, which fit really well with what they were trying to do to standardize training. Um, and then at the same time, he was in the early stages of developing you know, the Fire Department Instructors Conference, which was truly about education, not so much about vendors or any of that. And then as he moved through there, that, so that was the mid-70s, and then he did that um, through the mid-90s where, you know, some things took place and he was kind of removed from running it and then just kind of uh, faded off, you know, at that point. But in that whole time frame, most of his life, he, he was trying to push training forward. Um, he was trying to standardize it. He did a lot at the national level, you know, in Washington, was involved with some of those fire service caucus, you know, initiations and, and that being developed. So he did a lot. So up at that more political level. And the funny thing about the training is that that was where the training network kind of grew out of that, because even though he was doing a lot of training, it just wasn't hitting me as a firefighter in a small department that was right next to their organization. So that's kind of how I came off. But, you know, what I learned growing up as a kid is that, you know, his work at the Mass Fire Academy was truly years ahead of its time. Um, I was fortunate enough to go through the Mass Fire Academy as a firefighter. And, you know, to this day, I look at that training and still look at it as some of the best training I ever received. And I have to hope that the foundations of that training came from a lot of what he and a lot of guys did early on to really make it, you know, a core level material. Um, but as things change and, you know, society moved on, it kind of got further away from his core basics, which I sometimes laugh and look at and say, so his, you know, influence on me has kind of put me and a whole group of other guys at a place right now where we're trying to kind of get training, you know, at least deliver training that we feel is back to the basics, which is what they were trying to do years ago. And they kind of got there, but then it it uh, it just kind of ran away from itself, and it's so far removed from what he had intended. Um, and I don't think anybody's out there right now trying to get it get it back or to try to do that same thing to keep training, you know, about training and not all the extra stuff that goes into it. So, long and short answer of you know, I think he truly influenced me. I think he was such a visionary and seeing things years down the road that maybe a lot of people didn't see. Uh, and that might've you know, led to his demise because he was so far ahead that they couldn't see where he was going. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at it now, he'd have probably been on track and, you know, continue to do the visionary stuff that he was doing for most of his life. That's really cool to get to, to know him a little bit. I think it's it's just so unfortunate the way that life works that we we do our seventy or eighty years on here and um, maybe we're remembered for a generation and then we tend to uh, to drop off the map. So um, 
anything I can do to to kind of carry on that legacy and and make his name known to other people. Like, I don't know. I think we owe it to those people who who pour so much of themselves into us, and, and we continue to benefit from their legacies. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you asking about him. Like I said, I think he was he was a visionary through his whole life doing things, and it's kind of funny because if you if you can look back, what that group of guys that were you know assembled way back in the mid '60s to mid '70s, uh, and even leading into the early '80s, they were doing the same thing that a lot of groups are trying to do now. Um, I think it was easier for them to do back then uh, because there was less distractions, but it was way more difficult to do. And that, and it's why you look at it and say, what a monumental task, because they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have access to being, you know, somewhere instantly where today you and I are talking from you know many states away. Uh, they couldn't do all that back then. So they had to do it basically which is kind of funny, but they had to do it understanding how the process worked. And today we try to do it without even understanding the process because technologies allowed us to do it without understanding it. So it's kind of funny in a way, um, but it points to that, you know, there's the groups now trying to do the same things, but the biggest difference between then and now is the distractions that exist. So one of the things that he did was obviously being very focused on standardized training. And, and while that may have ended up moving away from basics, I know from learning from, from you and your cadre that, that standardization is important to you. Uh, with your instructor methodology out there at your facility and through the membership, you spoke to me about a green screen analogy when it comes to how an instructor should present information. And this is just kind of like one little piece of standardization. Um, so could you, could you talk about what that green screen is and how an instructor maybe can best present information to students? It really is the foundation of what we try to do at the training network. And so basically the green screen, if you've ever done any video editing, um, and I always use the weatherman uh, or weather woman, you know, for that matter, uh, as the example, because uh, they use maps on screen. They're trying to give you the weather, whether it's right or wrong is immaterial at this point, but they're trying to give it to you. And with the flip of a switch, because they're on a green screen, you can eliminate the weather person. But the intent was never the weather person. It was always the weather or the material. So. I try to tell guys the same thing out here, you know, so we get a lot of guys that come through and at the training network, it takes an enormous amount of people to make the place run. Uh, and very few people actually talk to the students. That's kind of a, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people want to teach or train, I guess, um, when I never really wanted to do that. I just wanted to, pass off the material. I wanted to create a place where people could learn because as we all know, you know, in order to truly learn, you have to kind of figure it out, but we can help them figure it out by creating situations to allow them to figure it out. So it's all about the material and that whole green screen concept was, you know, especially when we get young guys coming in that want to, you know, hand stuff off, 
you always have to remind them it's not about you. It's about the material. So truly, if, if you can deliver this material at the highest level, then they'll not even have to notice you. They'll notice the material. And the funny thing is, you know, it seems like in today's society, everyone wants to make a name for themselves. And, uh, you know, that goes back to that kind of green screen because you'll make a name if you deliver the material or you'll make a name if you don't. And what's kind of funny about that is that, you know, the person trying to make a name for themselves will probably make a name, but it may not be the name they were trying to make for themselves if they didn't focus on the material. But if they, if they focused on the material, then they'd have made a name for themselves more like the name they were probably trying to make for themselves in the first place. So it's kind of funny, but you know, at the end of the day, it's about the material. And I think that green screen analogy, if, if people understand it, means that if I flipped a switch and you were gone, but you were presenting the material in a way that people learned, then you did the job. And so you have to be able to remove yourself, which is why that, you know, the, the training network's whole foundation is built on whether it's, you know, the training or the buildings, or the scenarios, or the classes, they're all built on the material. And, you know, so I kind of laugh when I'm doing a, a class or trying to help guys, you know, build a building for themselves. Um, and I say that there wasn't a turn, a doorway, a window, a staircase. There, none of those were put in this building without first knowing what their purpose was for the training that we were delivering. And so I think that throws a lot of guys off because they, they just want to build a building, but there wasn't a turn put in the strip mall at the training network without understanding and knowing what a moving two and a half would have to accomplish and how far we could push an individual trying to accomplish that by designing a building that would push them to their limits and a little bit beyond. But because you built the training up to get them there, they could actually accomplish and now they were much better off when they left. So I you know, hope in a nutshell that hits the green screen because it's, it's more than just a person. But the, the whole analogy starts with trying to tell a person it's not about you, it's about the material. And then your whole training program if that's built on that same concept, then it's pretty hard to miss the point. Yeah, what you're talking about with your facility and the way it was built reminded me, just kind of off the top of my head, I, I think it was Joe Madden who said to us out there that the skill teaches the drill. I, right. Oh, I, I said that backwards. That the drill teaches, teaches the, the skill. skill. Right, and, uh, and I think, so we had a talk a long time ago, Joe and I, uh, Joe's the chief of training now in Lexington. And, uh, you know, in, in some of the talks we've had, well, you know, what happens at the facility. So we would create a class. And I'm, I'm proud to say um, that the classes we started delivering in the early 2000s are really the same classes we're delivering today. And I think that's a testament to what works on the fire ground 
and our discipline to keep it the same because we know it works. But in talking to Joe, I think one of the drills uh, we had talked about was there's a skill station in the engine class uh, called emergency loss of water. And the whole idea behind that is that we want to put the student in a position to actually figure out what to do if they thought they lost water. And so that was the purpose of the drill. The whole idea was you're going to stretch a line, you're operating the line, all of a sudden something happens and you're, you're not getting water. So the true purpose of the drill was to slow down and acknowledge the fact that you had a potential water problem. And then eventually we would cut the water and then they should really be thinking, okay, yeah, we have a water problem, but then we would give them water back for a minute knowing that they would take that bait and probably think nothing of it and then just continue to try to push in. And then at a certain point, we would cut the water completely and they would have to leave. So going through that station, that station was set up to, to do all of those things. All of those objectives were in that. But over time, what it became was a guy would rap on the building. They would close the gate on the Y and then they would rap on the building again and then it would come out or however it worked. And I told Joe, well, see, that's the problem. But the problem is we've, you know, somehow in this uh, morphing of the station, it became about running the station and not about allowing the skill to be learned. And so I said, all that means is that it, we just have to kind of reset and get guys back on the same page and understand that. It wasn't what they were doing in the station that was teaching them. It was how the station was laid out that was actually teaching them. So, you know, you and I, I guess if we really, you know, look at students, it's truly about human nature. So if we look at that fire ground and that station, we know that human nature was going to condition those responses. And so now we knew what drill to create to get them through those responses and then push them a little bit more. The better guy, the more experienced guy might push a little longer or he might actually communicate quicker and say, look, we got a problem. Can you figure it out? Um, but that was the meat of the learning was at the point that something started happening to water. And that was all in the station. So, I, you know, again, I kind of go on a tangent, but that was a, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off with Joe and he said, I get it. And so now I understand it. But if he had not been brought in on the early development, which is very tough to do to bring a guy in when it was first created, but it was good for us to say, hey, we have to do a better job at bringing guys up to the level to run the station so they truly understand that it was about the station and not about their little twist on the station. Yeah. You know, I know you get a ton of students out there and many of those students are influential or, or they're instructors in their own area. Um, I'm not sure how often you get out to see other people's training, but I can tell you from my experience that what you're talking about with running, with running the drill becoming the goal rather than obtaining the skill, it's almost an epidemic and I see it a lot and I've fallen, I've fallen prey to it because there's, there's an objective that has to happen and that's to get these people through a drill and over, 
over repetition, over repetition, over days, over weeks, it can, we can lose focus of, of what the actual objective is and it can become just about getting this done. So thank you for sharing that with us because I think it's vital and I think it's a very concise kind of um, uh, like a mnemonic device just to just to check with that check that box to say is the drill teaching this skill is it set up for uh, to get the desired behavior? No, and I think that um, I think one of the benefits that we truly have at the training network is that we have a facility that was built around the material and the most difficult thing for anybody. And we do, we go places um, and we have to kind of create the environment to do the stuff that we need to do there. And it's really difficult a lot of times to build the on-site facility that you need to teach the skill. And I think what happens a lot of times is, People want to do more. So, um, you know, there's there's quiet time in training. And what I mean by that is there's time and it's the most uncomfortable time for the less confident person delivering the training, because if it goes quiet, um, you know, a lot of times guys feel like they have to talk. They have to make up new material. They have to keep moving forward. When actually that quiet time was the time they should have just been performing the drill. And so um, so we tend to, you know, it's this whole society thing. We want more, we want more, we want more. Um, and I, I think it goes, you know, we were talking before about uh, doing some forcible entry training and somebody getting off track or maybe going a little bit further. You know, guys run through the basics because they just feel that, you know, we, we don't need that. We need something more. Um, and what we don't need is we just need time to practice that. But, you know, nobody's comfortable standing around doing nothing. And it's usually not the students doing it. And if they are, you don't have enough props for them to train on. Uh, but if it's the instructor standing around doing nothing while the students are actually doing something, that's acceptable if they're doing something to better their skill. You know, so... Um, I, I do think, you know, it's just that you just have to keep the basics down and not lose sight of it. Again, I got tangent again, but sorry. Do not apologize for the tangents. The tangents are extremely valuable. They're gold. I want to uh, shift gears just a, a little once again. Jim, you've got approaching 30 years of experience uh, with multiple departments. As I said, you're, you're a lieutenant in Indianapolis. Um, what are some, or do you have any memorable fires, memorable lessons learned that you could share with our listener? I know that story time sometimes gets a bad rap, but I think that, in fact, there's some value in that in that we can learn from what actually happened. It's not hypothetical. It's nothing can be more true than what's actually happened. So any, any memorable fires that you could recount for the listeners of the show? So uh, I, I'm probably bad at this because, you know, I hear uh, guys talk in great detail about fires they've been on. And for some reason, my memory is just not at that detail level, but I think from a broader stroke, um, 
you know, we had some busy years <clears throat> where I was um, in Indy. You know, they're not so busy anymore. Um, but I think that what's most memorable on all the runs, whether we did good or could have done better, uh, was that a break from routine is what usually threw us off. So I prided myself in making sure that our company was the company that was ready to go. Um, and I always wanted to be that company that even on the, you know, the worst fire, the chiefs would want to look for our company and know that we would get the job done. So I think the times that we missed the mark um, and my standards are pretty high. So missing the mark might not have been, you know, what guys said we didn't do so well, but for me and us, we looked at it and said, gosh, we could have done better. Um, but I think in the times that we got off track, it was because we broke down the routine that we knew would have worked and somehow we got off track on that routine. And it could have been, um, you know, who knows what was going on that day. Somebody might have been having a bad day. You know, who knows what it was. But I would say, you know, it all starts with that morning check every day and then getting your gear ready and then treating every response like it's, you know, the worst response possible and then stepping back when you know you can step back. And then if you had 15 runs that day, that you treated everyone the same. So, um, I, again, I don't have a lot of detail, though, that it was horrific on this fire. It was really bad or, you know, we did this or, you know, did that. But I know that the times we could have done better, we always figured out after the run that it was usually our own doing that made us not do as well as we would have liked. That's pretty interesting. So a lot of personal accountability there. Instead of blaming external forces, you guys were generally able to to find something in yourselves where you deviated from your plan. So am I kind of understanding that right? Yeah. And it was usually like and a lot of guys point fingers or try to make an excuse why it didn't go so well. And, you know, at the end of the day, it usually was operator error on our own part. You know, somehow we got off kilter and knew better. And, you know, I have to say it didn't happen a whole lot. But knowing that we always wanted to do better, you know, sometimes, you know, guys that we would have on the company, maybe they didn't stay. <clears throat> they didn't like the fact that it was always, uh, always constant improvement. You know, a lot of guys would like to just say, take a pat on the back and say, good job. Let's not worry about it. Keep going. But we were always, you know, wired in a way, at least the core group of us, that we just always wanted to get better. So it meant you had to be really critical of your performance um, rather than just accept a lesser level of performance and say, we're good. Let's uh, wait till the next run. Love that. Jim, uh, I want to move to some of the kind of the standard questions on the show. If you could have every firefighter in America read one thing, whether that's a book, an article, or a blog, what would that be? So I was thinking about this, you know, as we kind of led up to the conversation. I listened to some of the other podcasts, and uh, you know, I was trying to get a newsletter done this week too. And it, it seems like, um, you know, if I could say read anything, I kind of looked back at a couple of books. Uh, there was a book called Fireground Tactics by Manny Freed or Manuel Freed that was out of print, um, but you can still find it. And then the, the book uh, Firefighting Principles and Practices by Bill Clark, both two old books. And it's kind of funny. Um, 
you know, that I would say read these old books instead of all these new leadership books or any of that kind of stuff. Um, those books kind of talk about firefighting in a way that they had such a grasp on it in the early years. And there was very few books written about it. Um, and if you really, if you read those books now, I just read some passages in both of them, trying to you know, work on a theme for this month's newsletter. Um, and if you read the passages, if you just took out um, or could accept the fact that SCBA wasn't really prominent when they were written, um, so they talk a lot about make sure to wear a mask or, or do certain things. If you can, again, green screen it and go down to the true essence of firefighting, I think that's a pretty good read for people because it's not real sophisticated, um, but it truly does kind of walk through fire ground tactics in a way that we've kind of lost track of. And not, not to discount all these new books guys are writing, um, but as a as an individual that kind of puts a newsletter together every month, um, I kind of said it to my wife yesterday about, you know, she says, newsletter done yet? You know, making sure I'm on track. And I said, you know, one of the things I've noticed in, you know, all these years and especially recently is there's a lot of op-ed pieces, opinion pieces written on a daily basis anymore, but very few tactic tactics pieces written, you know, and so um, that's where I'd say I'd go back to those history books uh, and like everything, you know, in life, you know, 20 years from now, history will be current. And I think maybe if we can reverse psychology that and say, hey, let's start reading the old books instead of the new ones, maybe we'll get back quicker. That reminds me of a couple of things. I had a pastor who, who wouldn't read uh, books on theology that were newer than a hundred years old because yeah. he, he felt like if anything had lasted the test of time, then it was probably worth reading. And, and then additionally, you ref, you referred to it a minute ago, kind of an email exchange that we had about a, uh, a question that I put on Facebook and I was looking for academic research on what it takes to retrain a firefighter in a new way. And a question you posed to me was, could the new way completely replace the old way or deep down in the history of the new way, would you find the old way? Right. And that's, that's what you're talking about with these books, right? Like there's a lot of new material, but really a lot of times it's just pointing us to the work of guys like Manny Freed or Bill Clark. Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent. And you know, guys don't like it. Um, Everyone wants to, you know, do things for whatever reason they want to do them. But, you know, all these tips and tricks, I kind of, you know, I'm not a big fan of the tips and tricks. You know, a guy asked me this one time, why don't you teach the ads technique? They say you don't like the ads technique. Um, and I remember it and to this day, the question. And I, you know, I use it as an example all the time. And it's not that I, I say we don't teach the ads technique, uh, but I could show you know go to go to a forcible entry class and what do they spend a lot of time on and they spend a lot of time on you know putting the ads in and you know rolling it back and forth on a door prop and you know what every time they do it they uh they force the door but you know that that's not what happens all the time in real life and um 
you know, what they don't have a good grasp on is how to set the forks correctly and then in a two-man, no-visibility situation, drive the forks with the axe to actually defeat the door that didn't work with the ads technique. So um, I, I do kind of look in your question in the post, and I'd probably, you know, put the post out if, if people missed it, you know, maybe if they hear it in the podcast to go look at it. Because if you look at all the answers to the question you asked, you know, I, my head goes, you know, it's ready to explode looking at some of the answers that come up there. Um, and, you know, my thing was, is if you think back to, you know, early on, I said there's 25 engine company skills and 25 truck company skills. You know, there's not a whole lot of new stuff that's come down the pipe in the years I've been involved um, that have truly changed how to successfully put a fire out or search for a victim and get a victim out. Um, but we live in a society where every day someone's trying to come up with a solution, a new solution to a problem that hasn't changed. So that's a kind of a difficult place to be in. And, you know, your question was, you know, you were looking for, I think it was how long would it take to reacquire that skill or something? Yeah. And, and you know, my point was, if you just went back to the basics and taught the original skill, which was probably deeply rooted in the new derivative of the original skill, then you would have eliminated all the stuff you were trying to research and you would have found that it's just easier to teach it the way it works and forget about all the extra stuff that gets thrown in. And, uh, you know, some would say that's closed minded. Um, but I would say that, you know, we, especially at the training network and even, the, you know, on the fire grounds I've been on, have made it through a long time just focusing on those true basics that worked. And we haven't really had to change them a whole lot. And I, and I kind of, you know, go back full circle to the hockey discussion we had. And it was very difficult for me to transition from a stand-up goalie to a butterfly goalie, um, partly because I was just not flexible enough to do what they do now, uh, and it was easier for me to throw my body around. But what changed, you know, over all the time was the speed of the guys out front and their knowledge as well. So um, while I could make the transition, I was never a uh, a brand new butterfly goalie. Um, but the foundations of goaltending were still what the stand-up guys learned years ago. And I think if we talk about techniques on forcible entry or techniques on moving hose, at the end of the day, um, there's solid basic techniques that work. And then there's a whole lot of learning that teaches movement but doesn't um, stress the foundations. And usually those teachings that don't stress the foundations tend to run into trouble quicker and maybe not solve the trouble over the people that learned the foundations and maybe tried to just stay abreast on what other people are teaching. When, when you sent me that email and posed that question, like you ruined my day for about an hour not because it was bad, but because I was so 
I, I couldn't focus on my kids. I couldn't. I couldn't yeah, no, I didn't mean to do that. But it, I mean, no, no, a, no. I mean this in the best possible way. I just mean you blew my mind. I just and it was the only thing I could think about was was trying to move through that. And I've I've continued to to struggle with that. And and even in your answer right there, there's there's so much deep wisdom and knowledge. And and I don't know, Jim. I don't think I could ever follow up effectively with. <laughs> well, I think if you look, I would just put the post on because um, yeah. I looked at some of those answers and it's like, my gosh, you know, the amount of time it would take me to read through and then, you know, go to every source and look at all that stuff, which I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not even interested in that. Um, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I, I just feel that, you know, all of that. And even the original question about skill acquisition, how about just acquire the skill and then move on to the next skill? I kind of, you know, I, I tried to use uh, what worked for me early on in learning stuff was I always tried to apply a skill to another skill if I could so I didn't have to relearn another skill. And so um, what I mean by that is that if I was, if I understood uh, mechanical ventilation on the fire ground, then there wasn't really a whole lot I needed to learn to understand mechanical ventilation of a confined space. You know, I may have had to learn a little bit about the chemicals and why I was doing it, but in all honesty, ventilation, you know, using fans was ventilation using fans. So right. if I could tie those two together, and I've made a, you know, made it through my whole career trying to, I guess, learn exponentially, I guess, is to try to, you know, build off of things I know rather than try to find another spot to learn something that was already part of what was already in my arsenal. And so it's just helped me. But I, again, I think that, you know, we spend like, you know, your question was great. Does it take longer to learn the new way, I think, or the old ways trying to summarize it. And, uh, I just think, you know, it's always going to take longer to learn the new way because the new way is probably a derivative of the old way. Yes. Uh, so cool. So interesting. Okay. Jim, is there anything that you used to believe uh, in regard to the fire service that you've kind of done a 180 degree turn on that you've changed your mind about? Um, yeah, I kind of, I thought about this one too, and it's probably not, uh, I'd say probably not the answer that, you'd anticipate after everything we've talked about, but I'd say my 180 degree turn is that the fire department administrations really were looking out for the firefighters. And I, I kind of, you know, you'd say, well, what's that all about? But I, I just think that we're so far, like, you know, the institutions of fire departments these days, most of those administrative, uh, I guess, groupings in the fire departments, they're, they're not necessarily looking at the basics of what the firefighters do every day. So I used to believe that they kind of had your back, but I don't believe that anymore. Um, and, and I just, I look at it from all things. It's just, if you take a quick um, uh, look at the internet, kind of globally at fire departments, um, most of what fire departments are pushing is not the work of the firefighters. It's kind of all the extra work 
that they're doing, the, the stuff that's not at the street level. So I don't know, probably a strange answer to your question, but um, I think streetwise, I haven't really, uh, you know, taken a 180 on anything as it relates to, you know, what we're learning and doing. And I think that's probably a testament to the people I was able to learn things from throughout my whole career, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is a testament to that. And I hope, I hope someone listening to this, multiple people, you know, are on their way to being those administrative people. And I, I hope to see that change. I you, like you said, uh, you know, history tends to repeat itself and, and I guess I'm still young and naive enough to hope that uh, we can recapture our fire service and have leaders who are capable of, of having intelligent conversations in city hall, but also not forgetting the mission. Yeah, I think it's tough. And I, you know, I'm not saying I'm a pessimist, I guess I'm an optimistic pessimist or pessimistic optimist, one or the other, but you know, I look at it, say in society today, um, it's so different in terms of what it was, you know, years ago, looking at this business. And, um, you know, I think that one of your questions always was, you know, what are we wasting our time on? And, um, you know, one kind of adjunct to that, or the question we're talking about with this one is that, you know, I think that, and, and people coined it years ago, that the fire service, they were trying to make the fire service a profession. And, uh, you know, I think you could, it's a deep subject, but, you know, we're a blue collar trade and that doesn't mean we're not professionals, but, you know, we tend to be uh, in a business anymore that, you know, to use those words, white collar professionals are running a blue collar trade and it's just not working. Um, but what's kind of funny is that a lot of the white collar professionals were never in the truest sense white collar professionals. They were always tradesmen to begin with, or at least they worked in the trades. Um, and I, I kind of laugh, I guess, to you know, look at that. We're so worried about credentials or about certifications or about professionalism, um, not so much the fire ground performance of professionalism, but the professionalism of the department in the community. Um, but if we focused on professionalism of performance, then I think we'd actually find that, you know, we might get back to our roots a little bit. So, um, you know, the credentialing or the certifications have all led to that view. Uh, everything's about money. You know, you can you know tie these certifications or training hours and all that to get more money from somebody. But um, you know, at the end of the day, if you marry all of the paper to the performance, we're really so far off base. Thanks for adding that. Uh, well, uh, Jim, we are approaching an hour and a half. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, I know that I've gotten a mixed response. Most people enjoy this question. I, I know it can sound a little like name dropping or something like that. The reason that I enjoy this game of naming your ideal fire service crew 
is that I think it gives the opportunity to highlight some really great people in the fire service who maybe, you know, haven't ever had any recognition. So I'm hoping you'll play along and name for me your ideal fire service crew. And that could be on an engine or a ladder from any firefighter, any department, living or dead. Yeah. So um, I kind of thought about this one as well and um, listened back to some of the podcasts of what they said. You know, I'm influenced. Um, I'm truly influenced by the people I've been so fortunate to be surrounded by for many years. And, uh, you know, I would say, you know, I, I would list everybody at the training network, but, you know, I can't list everybody. So no offense to anybody listening that I don't list. Uh, but if I was saying off the top of my head, I would want to work with uh, Mike Lombardo, Bob Pressler, Timmy Collette, Sandy Lassa. Um, if I could go out on a daily basis and do runs with them, I think it'd be a hell of a gig, you know, and, and that's in any, <laughs> in any capacity. And I'm very fortunate. And there's others, you know, that work at the training network that I would equally include um, because it's a whole bunch of like-minded people that have come together for a whole lot of years um, and never went off course about the beliefs that brought us together um, or the beliefs that we've tried to pass on to other people. And, um, and so I would say, you know, if I could ever fight fires and, you know, you know, for a lot of guys, you could go volunteer in uh, Christiana, Delaware, because you could work with a few of those guys on real fires now, uh, which I hope to do. Um, but I think being around those guys, I think for me, that would be, you, you couldn't ask for a better gig. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds, that sounds like a good crew to work with. And it sounds like a crew I'd be happy to have, uh, you know, first due to my house. It's funny that you mentioned Christiana. I got a text yesterday and I received this text at the beginning of every year, I, I think for three years running now from my friend Ben. And it's a screenshot of Christiana's like run numbers for the year. And every year he proposes that we quit our jobs and we move to Delaware and get jobs at Home Depot and like volunteer at Christiana and go fight fire for a while with those guys. Yeah, I think, you know, the one thing about that, and I truly believe it, too, um, you know, the one thing that makes the training network work, I think, is that we come together, then we go back home, then we come together, then we go back home, then we come together. So, as you know, and you talk about this even in your day to day life at the fire department, you know, it's, it would be tough to do it all the time. I think that's the beauty of it. You know, yeah, I think it's the beauty is just getting together with like-minded guys. Uh, and I'd say that for everybody out there listening, you know, find that outlet, get, get together with like-minded guys. You may have to travel to do it. Um, but I think the rewards throughout your whole career, uh, will pay massive dividends if you can find that outlet. Jim, where can people find out more about Fire Department Training Network on the internet? So uh, the website um, is fdtraining.com. And then we have a, a Facebook page. Um, I'm not so savvy on that one. But, um, but if you can get to fdtraining.com, it has uh, everything about the network that we could kind of get up there. Um, guys tell me all the time that the 
website doesn't do it justice. Um, I haven't found a way to make it do it justice. Um, so I'd say the even better way to find out about us is maybe to come out uh, sometime. And uh, I think, you know, come out and see what we feel. You know, we're doing good jobs with, you know, basic training. And I think you'd like it if you could. But the start would be on the Internet because um, that's kind of the shingle that we hang out. Very good. You're right. The The website doesn't do it justice and it can't really ever. So, again, my plug is I got to spend three days out there in May with uh, with another guy from my department and some other friends from around the country. And I had high expectations, and it easily exceeded my expectations. That's so good to hear. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for what you built, Jim. Thank you for all the work that everyone puts in out there. As you said earlier, the logistics, the amount of people and equipment and consumables that goes into every class is immense and I appreciate you very much and I'm, I'm really grateful for what you've done out there for what it does for the fire service and for taking the time uh, to talk with me today no thank you Stephen uh, I, I really appreciate it we tried a couple of times to do it but I'm glad we were able to pull it off yeah very much uh, thanks for being flexible with me and putting up with uh, some rescheduling. So, um, Jim, thanks so much for uh, for coming on today. All right, Stephen. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do. 